Thank you for downloading this audio edition of a complete chapter from the volume entitled On Common Ground, International Perspectives on the Community Land Trust. I'm John Emmius Davis, one of the book's editors, along with my colleagues Lena Algood and Maria Hernandez-Torales. On Common Ground was published in June 2020 by Terra Nostra Press, a division of the Center for CLT Innovation. We hope that you enjoy the following program. Chapter 24, Community Control of Land, Thinking Beyond the Generic Community Land Trust. Written by Olivia R. Williams. Read by Susan Allen Craig. No progressive housing pitch today is complete without a mention of community land trusts. CLTs have become a hot topic, especially in today's affordable housing crisis, because they decommodify land, taking it out of the speculative market so that no one can flip a house or build luxury condominiums on it. The first CLT, New Communities Incorporated, was designed by organizers from the civil rights movement in the late 1960s as a mechanism for community control of land, especially for African Americans in the rural South, in response to devastating rates of black land loss. The original CLT involved agricultural land, cooperative businesses, and plans for constructing four villages with new educational, recreational, and industrial systems to meet the needs of residents. In the 1980s and 1990s, CLTs emerged in cities, too, where they proved useful in reducing blight and providing stability in disinvested neighborhoods while providing affordable housing. Now, the model is often touted by many organizers as a radical way to secure community control of land and housing for the working class as prices go up, especially in the urban core of many American cities. But when talking with hundreds of people in the CLT field across the United States while doing research on CLTs, it became clear to me that the CLT model is increasingly being perceived and promoted by housing advocates and practitioners as primarily an economically efficient, affordable housing strategy, rather than an organizational approach that empowers poor, working class, and marginalized people to take control of the land they occupy. The creators of the CLT model intended for collective decision-making around site planning and development to be controlled by the users of the land, with a board of CLT trustees, some living outside of the CLT's land, acting to ensure that the land stayed affordable for generations. But as the model grew and proliferated, highly professionalized boards and staff started running the show in more and more CLTs without significant input from low-income residents and neighbors on what they needed in their neighborhoods. One executive director from a CLT in Minnesota told me and my research team their thoughts about some of the old-time radicals at the early national CLT conferences. This is a business. This is about economic sense. I'm not drinking the Kool-Aid. You can't make me. I think you're all nuts that you're taking the commune kind of approach to life. That's not what we're about. We're about getting people into home ownership. 
A staff person from another CLT, who responded to a question about community engagement initiatives in their CLT, said, It's about offering these opportunities, affordable home ownership, to more and more families who desperately need it. So we'll do whatever we can do to expand those opportunities. If it comes through some form of homeowner engagement, that's great, but we aren't reliant on that and we see it as a secondary issue. These sentiments are not unusual among CLT practitioners in the United States. Even Grounded Solutions Network, the national organization for CLTs, which now promotes other housing strategies as well, has come to define its primary purpose as providing permanently affordable housing. Most mainstream CLTs have become so narrowly focused on bricks-and-mortar housing production and the long-term stewardship of affordable housing that other uses and aspects of the model are often overlooked. As the ideal of community control has been erased from practitioners' internal dialogue and organizational mission statements, it has all but faded from practice. How did this happen? This has happened in part because CLTs face a common financial problem. The monthly lease fees for the land that are paid by CLT residents to a CLT organization are so modest, typically $25 to $50 per month, that they cannot sustain the organization. Theoretically, there's a point at which the number of housing units would be large enough to cover the basic costs of staffing and operating the CLT from lease fees alone. But the number of houses required to reach that break-even point, the magic number as some have called it, may be well into the thousands. Few CLTs have reached it. Most never will. So, if an organization wants to sustain itself as a CLT, it has to bring in external grant money by actively pursuing new development projects on a rolling basis. In the United States, the most readily available sources of grant funding for the development of affordable housing come from city governments, the housing trust funds administered by municipal and state governments, the federal government's Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, or private foundations. Most CLTs only stay alive by continually imploring these agencies and institutions for funds and by continually acquiring land and adding housing to their portfolios. The increasingly competitive nature of most grants and the high price of land and housing development means that CLTs sometimes struggle to make ends meet. Often, CLTs find they are better off supplementing their affordable housing projects with a more profitable side venture, so they also become a developer, lender, real estate agency, or the provider of other services to help pay for the operational costs of the CLT. This process of revenue diversification helps to ease the burden of the constant search for outside grants to operate the CLT, but it can also divert attention away from the needs of the most marginalized people in a community. CLTs do important work in the context of rapidly rising land and housing values. They take property off the speculative market and hold it in perpetuity for low-income people. No developer can snatch up a plot of land once it is part of a CLT's portfolio. 
No real estate giant can develop that corner lot into luxury condos. The neighborhood around CLT's holdings may become desirable, pricey, and gentrified, but CLT-held land will remain more affordable and accessible. This function of the CLT is what gets organizers and activists excited about the model, and for good reason. But the dependence of CLTs on external institutional sources of funding can make the goals of community control and non-housing development difficult to achieve, since foundation and government funders tend to be most interested in encouraging CLTs to develop housing as quickly as possible. Financing the development of affordable commercial space, for example, can be more logistically challenging and financially risky than developing housing, so most CLTs stick to housing. Similarly, keeping CLT land undeveloped for the use of community gardens is not a lucrative use of valuable property, so that option is often rejected by CLT boards in favor of more housing. Building affordable housing as prices rapidly rise is not bad, to be clear. But neighborhoods are so much more than housing. To radically change the way decisions are made about what we want our neighborhoods to be, and to create and maintain community-owned institutions and common amenities that are accessible, community land movements must look beyond the most common, generic ways that the CLT model is being operated, funded, and applied, seeking more independence from external funders. Funder Requirements a case in point. In 2018, I was appointed to the Citizen Advisory Committee, CAC, in my city to oversee the distribution of Community Development Block Grants, CDBG, a federally funded program that allows cities and states to decide which local community development projects serving low-income people might be worthy of support. I saw the absurdity of a funder's requirements firsthand. Every local government body that allocates CDBG funds is required to have a CAC, nominally to give localities more control over the administration of federal grants. In practice, sitting on the CAC felt like being a cog in the federal bureaucracy, a volunteer administrator checking boxes and adding up points, making sure all the prospective recipients of the grants we were distributing would fulfill their end of the agreement. The resulting requirements are nearly impossible for small nonprofits to meet. For example, for an organization simply to purchase program supplies using CDBG funds, they must request a withdrawal of CDBG funds from the municipality, buy the supplies within three days, write a justification for why the purchase took longer than three days, or return the funds, produce and keep a purchase order or requisition form from an authorized representative of the organization, keep an invoice from the vendor with a signature from the organization's representative verifying the goods were received, document where the supplies are stored, document which objectives were fulfilled by the purchase of the supplies, document which budget line item the supplies fall under, and ensure that three separate individuals in the organization, one, authorize the transaction, two, record the transaction, 
and three, maintain custody of the goods purchased. All of these requirements come after an organization has already written a detailed grant application meeting the objectives and checking the boxes required by HUD, including documentation of highly regimented accounting practices in their organization. The regulations around CDBG allocations represent just one example of how the dominant paradigm of grant funding inhibits the autonomy of nonprofits. Private foundations can be just as cumbersome and biased in their grant stipulations. And, of course, only specific activities fall under the funder's goals. Federal money, for example, cannot be used for any political activities. Private foundations, too, shy away from funding advocacy and organizing that are aimed at changing public policy and making governments more responsive to the needs of low-income and working-class communities, activities that are deemed political. The result, professionalization and the abandonment of community organizing. Quote, in the old days, we had many conversations using the language of movement about land reform, the importance of community control, and the fight for social justice. Community land trusts are, after all, children of the U.S. civil rights movement. But that language doesn't seem to surface much anymore, and the words we adopted to appease lenders, funders, and lawyers has become the internal language we use as well. End of quote. Greg Rosenberg. Funder requirements and restrictions like those I encountered in my own city are what earlier led the authors of The Revolution Will Not Be Funded to argue for the abandonment of grant funding for nonprofit work. Just the administrative burden of meeting the conditions of funders requires paid staff, office equipment, budgeting software, and professional skill sets beyond the capacity of many grassroots organizations. Once they grow to the capacity to handle grant applications and administrative tasks, many organizations find their original mission and goals getting gradually eroded or swiftly diverted to meet the requirements and priorities of their funders. The energy they once had for grassroots organizing gets channeled into bureaucratic work. This argument is not new. Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward, in their 1979 book, Poor People's Movements, Why They Succeed, How They Fail, made the case that, quote, organizations endure, in short, by abandoning their oppositional politics, end quote. Many CLTs in the United States have followed suit, paring down their initial commitment to engaging, involving, and empowering the communities they serve in order to chase grant opportunities. There are exceptions, of course, but CLTs with more radical ideals of community empowerment, community ownership of land, and anti-gentrification organizing tend to have a harder time finding the funds to fulfill their expansive, transformative missions. Most public and private funders of CLTs are concerned primarily with the number of affordable homes that are being produced and preserved for lower-income people, not the ways that residents are engaged after they become the occupants of those homes, nor the needs that residents may have for non-housing development in their neighborhoods. 
CLTs that are serious about resident engagement often struggle to find the funds to support community organizing and any other kinds of non-housing activity. The effect of funders' externally imposed goals is particularly insidious, considering how routinely and systematically low-income and marginalized communities are cut off from opportunities to assert their voice and agency in urban development. When improvements come to a low-income neighborhood, land values go up and can ultimately displace the population. Therefore, if you're poor, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Live in blight or welcome new development and get kicked out of your neighborhood. For these reasons, CLTs can be important tools to bring improvements to neighborhoods while insulating them from market speculation. Improvements can mean housing, but also so much more. When the market so inexorably limits marginalized communities' choices, it should be up to low-income residents to decide what they need in their neighborhood. Ultimately, CLTs can and should be vehicles of empowerment for people who are systematically disempowered. Indeed, this was the intention of the model's founders. Without this piece, CLTs lose a vital part of their legacy, and marginalized communities remain voiceless in decisions about their neighborhoods. Paul Kivel's chapter in The Revolution Will Not Be Funded encourages organizations to think about to whom they are accountable, their funders or a grassroots constituency in the communities they serve. He writes, quote, in the nonprofit industrial complex, accountability is directed toward the ruling class and its managers, toward foundations, donors, government officials, larger nonprofits, research institutes, universities, and the media. These are all forms of top down accountability. I am suggesting a bottom up accountability guided by those on the front lines of grassroots struggles for justice. In which direction does your accountability lie? End of quote. Most CLTs in the United States have become beholden to the goals of their funders, letting their missions drift away from some of the most radical pieces of the model's potential for impact. As a result, CLT's accountability comes down from the stipulations of its funders instead of coming up from the preferences and needs of its community. Beyond Grant Funding, Possible Directions Forward So how might a movement for community control of land and housing, which is where the CLT movement began, become more accountable to those on the front lines of grassroots struggles? The challenges faced by CLTs today are primarily the result of two specific problems, the model's dependence on external funding and the stipulations for receiving that funding. Collective ownership of land without grant funding has long been proven possible, most notably in the cooperative housing field. Housing cooperatives have, for many generations, relied upon the capital of their founding members to acquire buildings without using external grant funding. But for low-income residents, finding the capital for a down payment on a building can be nearly impossible, and getting a group of people to commit to buying a building together can feel like a pipe dream. 
Even when efforts to collectively buy property are successful at first, they are at high risk of failure if there isn't a backstop. Among housing cooperatives in the United States, close to half of all limited equity cooperatives, LECs, eventually demutilize their assets. That is, their owners decide to sell either the entire building or their individual shares at market prices so that the co-op's units are no longer affordable. For their part, group equity cooperatives, independent group-owned houses, often run into legal and financial hurdles that undermine organizational stability, economic independence, and the development of additional housing. Recognizing these challenges faced by housing cooperatives and the shortcomings inherent in the reliance of CLTs on grants from governments and foundations, there are new visionaries who are exploring community-funded models for the acquisition and ownership of land. Two examples, the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative in Oakland, California, and the Eco-Villagers Alliance, which already owns land and is starting a project in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. These are prototypes of collective ownership where non-resident members can invest in property that will still prioritize resident control of development and stay affordable for generations. The details of these models in development differ, but both of them involve different membership categories, including residential and commercial, tenant members and investor members, and even individuals who choose to be both tenants and investors. With equity sourced from the community outside of the tenant pool, these organizations can grow without appeasing institutional funders for grant money to buy property, and they will be able to rely less on banks to finance property development. Importantly, these two initiatives act as investment vehicles for people who want to pull their money out of ethically questionable markets and invest in affordable, sustainable, democratic land stewardship. Even tenants can build wealth this way by investing in cooperative land ownership and receiving dividends from the pool of rents collected on the land. They become tenants and landlords simultaneously, making decisions about their neighborhood's development collectively. Each tenant member gets only one vote in local decisions, no matter how much equity they invest. In terms of governance, tenant control is prioritized, with community investors having appropriately limited voting power. CLTs can also experiment with and benefit from new strategies of community land investment. Home ownership-based CLTs by themselves tend not to generate enough revenue to repay a loan, even one sourced from the community. But in the right conditions, CLTs can find community financing strategies to be helpful in securing capital for site acquisition with revenue-generating community partners. The Oakland CLT, for example, has begun partnering with other community groups and cooperatives to purchase properties using community financing to keep commercial rent affordable for important community-based institutions in a rapidly gentrifying city. The Oakland CLT's vision for acquiring multiple community finance sites in partnership with a set of mission-aligned local organizations may indeed light the way for other CLTs struggling with the tensions between grant funding and community control.
Because acquiring real estate requires considerable capital input as well as legal and financial knowledge, some degree of professionalism is necessary in all collective land ownership strategies. The key is to combine that professional knowledge base with an organizational infrastructure that fulfills the needs of marginalized communities, seeking as much of their leadership and input as possible. Maintaining a culture of participation and collective support must be an ongoing goal and practice of any community-owned land initiative through social organizing, inclusive leadership, community-building activities, and partnerships with strong grassroots initiatives. While many CLTs find it difficult to be productive developers and sincere community organizers simultaneously, some CLTs have managed to maintain organizers as full-time staff. And other CLTs partner with already organized community groups to help them to attain the overall development and empowerment goals for their neighborhoods. The Social Justice CLT Back to Being a Movement This is a critical time in the movement for affordable land and housing. As real estate prices soar and wages stagnate, activists are seeking a way forward and often latch onto CLTs. But, as Oksana Miranova has argued, to address the housing crisis head-on, CLTs must be part of a comprehensive strategy involving rent control, public housing, and a network of other community ownership strategies. Organizers looking to keep land democratically controlled should be aware of the structural limitations of the CLT model and the limited funding environment we currently find ourselves in. Even if more funding sources are dedicated to CLT expansion, more CLTs will not necessarily mean more community-controlled development or grassroots planning efforts. Without a continued focus on community control in CLTs, we lose opportunities to build and to cultivate multifaceted CLTs with neighborhood amenities beyond housing. Admittedly, there are not as many clear funding sources or technical assistance providers for CLT applications and uses beyond housing. CLTs therefore find themselves pulled in the direction of housing development by their peer networks and grant providers, and the housing-focused CLT field perpetuates itself as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Those CLTs that have managed to develop community centers, playgrounds, commercial spaces, and urban farms, which they saw as important for their local communities, have done so by getting more creative with their budgets and funding sources. But nearly all of these CLTs have had to build their non-housing projects from scratch without a guide to follow. The result is that CLTs continue to be seen and funded primarily as an affordable home ownership tool. For these reasons, I have highlighted a few new strategies for community finance development focused on local needs and tenant control. Those of us who are passionate about democratic control of development must be willing to find creative ways to fund and to use CLTs, thinking beyond the usual applications that pull CLTs away from the communities they serve and away from the original intentions of the visionaries who brought the CLT into being.
acquiring and administering property should not be the only goals of a movement for affordable housing and land. To confront the inequalities perpetuated by private property ownership, including deepening wealth disparities and the domination of urban development decisions by the elite, affordability must be coupled with bottom-up control of neighborhood development by residents. Somewhere along the road, the CLT movement largely abandoned this vital piece of its legacy. It is not too late, however, to reignite a passion and possibilities for community control. This has been an audio presentation of a published chapter from the book entitled On Common Ground. To order the entire volume of 26 essays, authored by scholars and practitioners from a dozen different countries, or to learn more about the International Community Land Trust movement, please visit the website of the Center for CLT Innovation. We can be found at www.cltweb.org. Thank you for listening.